From Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Kendrick Whiteman. This is Zoom Room, a youth-produced podcast where we zoom into a different theme or topic through interviews and conversations relevant to us, the youth of Alaska. Alice Connett Glenn is an Inupiaq woman and podcaster from Ukiavik, Alaska. Among her many projects, she is the host and producer for Coffee and Quack, a series exploring the collective experience of contemporary Native life in urban Alaska. She also serves as host and producer for Resolve, a series about missing and murdered Indigenous women in Alaska. In this extended episode, AMI producer Roe McCowan talks with Glenn about her various projects. They discuss growing up Native in Alaska, disconnection from heritage amongst Native people who grow up in urban areas, and how Glenn manages interviewing people about their most traumatic experiences. I was talking to my dad about this interview the other day, and he asked if you're related to the larger Glenn family on the North Slope, and I was wondering if that was true or not. Yeah, I think there's only one Glenn family on the North Slope, and that's mine. Um, yeah, so my dad is Richard Savick Glenn. Um, he just received his honorary PhD from UAF last year, um, late last year, I think it was, maybe the year before. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, my mom is Arlene Glenn, but she's, uh, my parents kind of split recently, so within the last five or six years. Um, but so she's changing her last name from Glenn to Ukbik, her uh, maiden name. Um, but yeah, my older sister is Patuk Glenn. Um, she is the uh, executive director of the Arctic Slope Community Foundation. She's also kind of TikTok famous. Um, and then my younger sister, Roberta Glenn, um, she is doing her master's program in um, something, something scientific. Uh, and she's working on it and she's working on her dissertation right now or whatever it's called, master's thesis or whatever. And then uh, my youngest sister, Joanne, um, she just finished up her one and a half year of college. She decided to stay home this semester um, just because college is weird uh, right now during the pandemic. So she just she's like, hey, I'll just work for a bit, maybe take a gap year and then reexamine where I am in a year and then maybe go back to school. But yeah, so um, that's my immediate family. And then, uh, yeah, we are our family just grows from there. Right. And uh, the North Slope is a small place. Alaska is a small place. So, yeah. Who is your dad? Nathan McCowan. He's the CEO of the St. George Tana Village Corporation. Oh, wow. Very good. Very cool. I feel like Alaskans don't talk about it very much, but Native people's experiences with living here are vital to our culture and our way of life. But Native people rarely share their experiences with the world. One of the main things I want to to talk about with you today was your personal experiences growing up Native in Alaska and exactly what exa- that's been like for you. I grew up in Utkervik, um, which is a community of, what, 4,500 people about. And then I think at least 60% are Inupiaq, um, you know, indigenous to the region. So I kind of grew up feeling part of the majority of my community. Um, there was a lot of cultural involvement. Uh, my older sister was on our whaling crew. She went out whaling. My youngest sister 
uh, Roberta did so did as well. I didn't do it too much. I was kind of more like a book nerd and like at school and, you know, playing sports and stuff. I found my identity and my education a little bit more. Um, but I grew up loving and respecting, you know, that part of me. That being said, I also am going to be honest, there wasn't a lot of representation of Alaska Native people or people like me, even people that look like me growing up, especially on TV or, um, you know, I guess in magazines and, you know, what, whatever media that we consumed. Thankfully, we had the radio, which was definitely, you know, I heard Inupiaq language all, all the time on the radio and heard people that I know and love on the radio, local celebrities, right? But I will say that because there was um, some lack of representation, it had me questioning my place in the world as an Inupiaq person um, because I felt like I was good and important and part of a community when I was in Utkarvik, but when I left, it was just a totally different experience. So we would come to Anchorage, you know, for like school shopping or grocery shopping or, you know, I we were here when my youngest sister was born because, um, you know, my mom was a little bit older and was a little high risk. So we were hanging out here all summer waiting for Joanne to be born. And um, I will say there was a little bit of shame um, or... Uh, I guess maybe just um, a misunderstanding of self and identity in my place in the world outside of Utkarvik. Um, I remember I I used to like attend all of these other different cultural events in Utkarvik, like Filipino parties. And like, you know, I got to know a lot of the um, non-native kids at school just because I, um, I think I was more I could. I felt like I could relate to them a little more because of the non-representation in media, right? And so I was, I was like MTV, you know, VH1, BET. I was like, yeah, you know, I get it. Um, but yeah, you know. And then as I got older, um, and I left Utkarvik for college, and when I was eighteen, I went to Embry Riddle Aeronautical University in Arizona, um, and that's when I had kind of a big culture shock. Um, I knew what life was like outside of Utkarvik, but I hadn't lived on my own full time, you know, without my parents' support or my family's support um, in a different place. And so that was hard. And there was a lot of like, you know, things that I learned that you don't normally learn in the village. Like I'd never been to a movie by myself before, um, to the theater or whatever. <laughs> and so that was an interesting experience. So I I had some experience with people questioning um, who I am and where I come from and um, even just some of our traditional practices that none of that was ever frowned upon at home. But people in like, you know, from the suburbs in California, because like a lot of those kids went to my school, um, they were just like, what are you doing? Like, you're so barbaric to eat animals and to why are you, you know, like they were asking me something about like polar bears and why do we, why are we even living in polar bear like country or whatever? Because like it's their land. And I was like, what the heck are you guys talking about? Like you guys are clearly like disillusioned, you know, like just a total lack of education. Right. And, um, and I felt like I had a lack of education as well to the, to the true history of who I am and where, and how my people came to be to where they are today. Um, That wasn't, as honest as it could have been, I think, in the education system, you know, and so there was, 
that was a particularly hard time for me because I was coming to terms with what the outside world thought of me and then what I'm thinking of myself, right? And and if those things are both feeling like oppressive or feeling misunderstood or confused, then um, I just found myself being angry a lot. You know, I didn't want to talk to anybody anymore. I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to explain myself anymore. <laughs> you know, I'm like, go Google it, golly, you know, <laughs> like there's, you can Google that shit. Um, but yeah, I, I, I went through it a little bit and, um, and then I, I realized there was something missing in my life and I didn't know what it was. But once I moved back home to Alaska, not back home to Utkarvik, but back here to Anchorage, I, I kind of felt like that little hole in my heart was being filled a little bit by a little bit because I was reintroduced to culture, reintroduced to, you know, Alaska native people, food, language, um, and people like me, you know, and so I felt a little bit more comfortable and I felt like I was learning a whole lot more. And it came, I came to appreciate my upbringing. I came to appreciate the values that I um, obtained living in Utkervik um, and, and the values that I share with the Inupiaq people and, um, and just being, feeling very honored and lucky to be where I was, where I am today, you know, and so it's just, I think maybe almost full circle. I hope not f totally full circle because I'm not ready to die or anything, you know, <laughs> like I just want to uh, continue growing and continue flexing, you know, that muscle to come to understand who I am fully as an Inupiaq woman and, and how I can better support the Alaska Native community and those that come after me because that's important to me. Yeah, totally. So growing up in Uktiagvik, what do you have any memories of being introduced to your culture and your heritage? And like, what was that like? Always, you know, and it's not even like, I don't even remember it being introduced. It was just there, you know, like it was the water I was swimming in, basically. Um, we always had uh, Inupiaq drum dancing. Um, we always had uh, practiced our subsistence um, hunting, um, seasonal whaling, right? So every spring and fall, my family is part of a whaling crew, and it's called Savik, Savik Crew. Uh, my dad was a whaling co-captain for a long time, and so we would be put to work. You know, we would be um, helping to process the whales, hel helping to cut up the meat, and then serving it to the community during different events and stuff like that. So that was... Um, always part of my life. Uh, we would go camping, you know, uh, springtime is a perfect time to go up inland and go camping and go hunting. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just completely evident everywhere um, in Utkarvik. And I think that we were lucky that way because I come to realize that other Alaska Native groups weren't so lucky, I think because we we're so far up north that it was a little bit harder for um, non-Native people to get there <laughs> and to settle there because it's cold and maybe they didn't want to stay or whatever. Um, but in, in many ways, we were extremely fortunate to to retain our culture, our language still. You know, I mean, I won't say, I'm not fluent. I try my best to introduce myself and to understand what people are saying, but I'm by no means fluent. Um, but that doesn't mean that I can't be. You know, there's there's programs at Elisa Ravik College in Utkarvik, the tribal college there, that um, we are able to take classes to learn if we're really serious about it. And so I will be someday, you know, I want to go straight forward into that um, route too. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was 
it was everywhere. We had culture and celebration of culture everywhere. And that's why I felt good at home, you know, and then to be kind of uh, away from it for so long in college was um, a little bit like that was the culture shock. It wasn't really so much like, oh, I don't know how other people live in the world. It was just being without all of those crucial elements of culture and connection to culture and land and sea and no, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I want to let you know, like it was, it was evident and we we're fortunate and I, and I feel great that, um, it was at the, that point And I just kind of want it to be in the future better for our young people. I know from my personal experiences, it's never really been like that. I grew up in Juneau where my family is from, where my people are, and it's still, you know, like I went to celebration and things like that, but it just wasn't really as immersive as you're describing. And I'm really, really glad that you got to have that experience from birth, it seems like. Yeah. And that's a privilege. You know, I recognize that. And that has been something that I've had to come to terms with as an adult is that not every Native person's experience is the same, even in their homelands, you know. And, And so for me, I definitely have to like check myself sometimes when I'm in these settings with other Native people. And I feel like it's a little bit intense or like somber or, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, their experience is so different from my own. Um, And so for me, I don't want to make anyone feel bad about those kinds of things, but I choose to focus on the the good things, you know, and the happy things, not the trauma or the, you know, loss or whatever. I choose to celebrate the things that make me feel happy and whole and, and, and move forward with, with that foot forward, you know, instead of like this uh, other stuff, which I know that there's a time and place to recognize those things. And I, I always give people space for those things too. But for me personally, I don't want to focus on the trauma and, um, and it kind of bothers me sometimes when people do, but also I have to understand that it is a privilege to grow up so close to my culture and heritage and, and not feel lost, I guess. That's a really great outlook to have to just kind of like, look at the good things and um, be grateful for what you have. So thinking back to your childhood, what moments kind of stick out to you as a whole? Um, <laughs> I have a bunch. I have a bad memory, number one, but I, I have, you know, some good ones. I know that I used to go camping with my best friend, Margaret Alice, um, every spring. Well, I think we went twice together, but it felt like every spring. Um, and yeah, it was just so much fun. We would just go up inland for two weeks, 80 miles, um, inland on the Chip River. And, you know, it was just her and I, and we were like free to do whatever, like, you know, well with her, her dad and her stepmom or whatever, but like, it was her and I, we just felt like we owned the world. Like we could do whatever we wanted. Like there's, you know, no one else around. So we can just like be crazy and like explore, Um, I felt so free. It was incredibly freeing to be, you know, out on the land, 80 miles inland where, you know, it almost feels like you're just like, I don't want to say disconnected, but like you're free. You're free to do whatever you want. Um, And especially if, you know, her dad or her stepmom are just like busy doing other things. We used to like build snow forts, you know, and then we would go looking for caterpillars um, the little fuzzy caterpillars, because like right when the sun starts um, melting the uh, the top layer of the snow onto the tundra, the little uh, fuzzy caterpillars start popping up. 
and you know we would just go collect them and make like a little caterpillar hotel in our in our little snow fort and then um yeah we would just like call geese you know for fun and we saw so many different animals you know people think that the arctic and like uh above the tree line is just like some desolate area but it's really not you know there there's a lot of life and a lot of things there you just have to be willing and open to look for them um so i mean that was that's always been an amazing memory for me um other moments i I really cherish my time with my grandparents because um, in I know that in the older days, like our uh, parents used to gift their children to grandparents so that the grandparents will have um, somebody to take care of them in their older age as they grow, right? And as they grow and as they age. Um, and so what I did is I used to sleep at my grandparents' house all the time because my Aka needed a lot of help. She had rheumatoid arthritis and she was an Inupiat language teacher. Um, so she was great with kids, you know, and so I loved her so much and she loved me so much and we would just hang out and laugh and, uh, you know, and I do things for her, like go shopping or go take her trash out and, you know, help her get dressed and everything like that. So I, I always dream of my Aka and, and I think because I was so young and I started so young at my, my Aka's house that like, that's what really sticks out for me. And I feel like she's still with me because I dream about her all the time. Um, and she used to tell us stories, you know, like crazy stories and like scary stories. And, you know, I, w I remember I was crying to go home one time. I really wanted to go home to my mom and dad. But she told me, like, don't walk home because I was like, I was, I'm going to go walk home. You know, <laughs> like like I knew well, like where to go or whatever. I mean, it was definitely several blocks away, but I was so young. And she was like, no, if you do, you know, the little people or the or the ten legged polar bear is going to get you. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you know. And so uh, I remember those times and yeah, I can just smell her house, you know, still like it smelled like um, spearmint gum and uh, quok, like fish quok, which is frozen or raw um, fish and uh, and just fur, parka fur. That's just what her house smelled like to me. And, and it was it seemed so big, but once I went back again when I was an adult, I was like, oh, my God, this place is so tiny. <laughs> um, what else? I don't know. Like, like um, I used to play out a lot. We used to play, uh, we'd go mugurukiing. We called it mugurukiing, which is like you run over the ice and hope that you don't fall in, you know, in the beginning of, of uh, spring and the beginning of fall. We would do that. I mean, but the water is so shallow, you know, you're not going to die or anything like that. But I mean, if you don't go out on the lagoon, but, uh, yeah. So we used to go and run, try to see, you can go the furthest on the ice. And it was just, it was crazy and styrofoam boating. So we just find styrofoam around town and just like grab it and go, uh, boating on the little puddles and stuff on the tundra. Um, you know, I think that we were free. I like, I can't explain my childhood any more than like freedom. And that's why I got my traditional tattoos is, um, I was going through a hard time here in Anchorage for a while. I had just quit my job and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do my podcasting full time. Um, but I was still like, I felt like I needed to understand why I was doing my podcast. And so I needed a grounding and, um, and so I went to go see Holly Nordlum, who does Inuit tattoos. She's from Kotzebue. And she was just like, just imagine all of your anxieties leaving your body with every poke. It was a traditional hand poke. 
um, tattoo. And so I just listened to her and I listened to her stories and everything. And then once she was done, it literally took like 15 minutes, you know, cause it's just dots, you know? Um, but like, once I got up, I felt lighter and I felt free. Like I felt freer, you know, for some reason. And the only other place I've ever felt that is at home and in my childhood when we're free to just, you know, examine and explore and go out on the land. And um, we weren't being like bird dogged by anyone or everyone, you know, like it felt so freeing um, because our parents would let us, everyone watches you, you know, like it's not like a we didn't always have a babysitter all the time or, you know, our parents weren't always watching us, but everybody, like the whole community watches you, you know, like if you're playing outside and getting into trouble and playing out on like the sea ice or something, then you're going to get scolded, you know, by someone. And it doesn't have to be your parent or it doesn't even have to be your family. Like people are looking out for you. So we used to just do whatever we wanted, but then once we got into, you know, real trouble, then people would scold us, but it still felt like we were, you know, like anything was possible and like we can do whatever we wanted. And, um, so yeah, I associate that feeling with, um, being home and being free. And, um, yeah, I have, I have really great memories of my childhood of just exploring. Yeah, that's really sweet. I really loved the description of your grandmother's house. It made me almost nostalgic, because that description was just really sweet. I really loved that. Um, it's very interesting to me that you still have dreams about your grandmother. Mm-hmm. All the time. And it's it's wild. Like I And sometimes it's not even of her physically. It's just of her um, – some like presence, you know. Like I just know that I'm there with her even though I don't see her in my dream. Um, yeah, I think I just carry her spirit with me so – wholeheartedly that she's she never left you know so that's cool that's really great and and I love her and miss her dearly but I also know that she's always with me so that's just I mean that's so sweet and it's funny because my older sister Patuk she's named after this grandma that I used to you know um basically be like a live-in kind of person with her and then I'm named after my grandmother on my dad's side so that's my mom's mom and then I'm named after my grandmother on my dad's side but they get they used to get they used to get Patuk mixed up with my other grandma and then um I look more like an upbeak than my I think my sister does my older sister does and so it's kind of like we cross paths but I mean it's still like we still both covered all the bases, you know, like we both are very close with our Akas. So, um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's really great. Um, I have some questions about your podcast. So you talk on your podcast, Coffee and Quack, about contemporary Native life in urban Alaska. How often do you encounter with your guests a disconnect with their heritage if they've grown up in a more kind of like urban Western culture? I would say a lot. Um, several people. And um, and that's okay, you know, because every Native person, every person's um, experience is valid, you know, and it's all needed to fully understand ourselves and our place in communities, right? So, um, yeah, I've, I've, and I've even like, spoken about other people um with with people that aren't as connected as well but 
there's no need for this idea of lateral violence or lateral aggression or whatever. Like it's not anybody's fault if they grew up in a different space that's not as connected to culture, you know, and that's, um, that's something that I completely recognize and hold space for in my heart. But I also think that there is some privilege in that too. There's privileges both ways, right? Um, I think this past year and this, you know, the year before has really caused me to examine what privilege means and, um, and how do I use it in an in, how do I use my privilege in an intentional way to support other people that might be less privileged than me, right? And so um, in that way, I do think that some people that uh, are not as connected, they take up a lot of space um, and, and leave little space for other people that might better understand some concepts or something. But then, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to hate on anyone or anything like that, but I do think that that exists. I don't know to what capacity because I'm not by any means an expert on any about culture either. So I can't really say, um, but I do try to be mindful of those kinds of things instead of you like using my, um, indigeneity as some sort of pass or some sort of like, um, you know, microphone so that I can speak on all of the issues and not give the mic to anyone else, you know, or like, uh, there's a, there's a way to do it that helps to be intentional and mindful of the community that you're supporting, right? And not just doing it for clout or just doing it for popularity or just doing it for money or, you know, like there's a, it's bigger than that and more complex. So um, that's just something that I personally like to check myself usually with. Um, and, you know, and I make mistakes. Like one time I, um, I was asked to facilitate a panel discussion for the Inuit Art Foundation um, and their their panel discussion on LGBTQ in the Native community, in the Inuit community. And for me, I did that podcast episode just, you know, out of curiosity. There, episode three, I think, is um, LGBTQ in the Native community. And um, I think I gave the impression that I – I experience those things or like I, I am part of the LGBTQ, but I'm, I'm really not. I, I like to consider myself an ally, but I, I don't, um, I haven't experienced the, that type of oppression, right? Or the, that kind of, um, I guess, discrimination. And um, I think that other people thought that I was queer or something. And I'm like, cool, like I, <laughs> that's fine with me. I'm not, I don't have anything against it. But it also is taking up space where another queer person could you know, probably better suited, probably has better ideas for questions than, than I do, you know? And, um, and so that was like, oh, shucks. I didn't even think about that because my friend Jenny, she was just like, oh yeah, people are thinking that you're queer now that, you know, because you're, you're on a list now. And, you know, and I'm like, oh, shucks, who do I need to tell that I, I'm not, but I, I'm, I'm here, you know, I'm here to hear, hear people out and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to take up space where other people can better speak for things. Right. And so, um, that's what I'm coming to learn as well. Cause it, there's privileges and everything. There's le different levels and there's different communities, right. The, the intersectionality. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm here to just, uh, hear people out and, and to hear their experiences. And I do believe that every native person's experience is valid as long as we're being mindful and intentional about the stories that we tell. 100%. I think that's 
again, just a really great outlook on kind of life and the idea of every person has their own unique experience and every person has, like you said, like an intersectionality within their identities. So just jumping right into it, what do you think are some of the lasting effects of colonialism in Alaska? Mm, There's a lot. Um, There's a lot. But also, you know, I do think that we've made great strides in, um, you know, self-determination, empowerment, um, revitalization, reconnection to culture. um, And it's ever-changing, right? So... Okay, let's see. Let me try to think of like the biggest ones. (laughs) I think maybe the biggest one is regulation. That's something that we still struggle with today. I know that a lot of Native people who aren't like quote unquote blood quantum certified, they can't hunt their Native um, foods or animals or whatever, their subsistence foods because they're not fully blood quantum certified Native. That's bad. Also, we're not allowed to commercialize any of our native foods, which in some instances I understand if the animals are endangered, but if they're not, then, you know, why are other people allowed to capitalize on their resources, but we can't, you know, Um, like, what are we trying to preserve? Like, you know, are you trying to keep us in the past? That's another thing. Um, I also think religion is interesting. Um, because um, many of our Alaska Native communities, they had undergone the mission, the mission, you know, missionization of Alaska, where in many ways we weren't allowed to sing our songs, dance our dances, um, speak our language. Um, I even read a book where it said that we weren't even allowed to hunt on Sundays when we're in, in some time, in some times of famine, you're starving. And maybe that's the only day that you can get a caribou that comes into town or a seal that pops up. You know, I don't have anything against organized religion. I just, I'm just coming to understand that those are some things that happened to us um, collectively that negatively impacted our culture, but also in some ways enhanced and, and brought people um, some type of um, spirituality. I think it existed. It's always existed. And everybody knows in the Inupiaq community that spirituality always existed within us, but it was um, just in, I just, it just took a different form when Christianity arrived. And I get that. Um, I'm not particularly religious. I do think I'm spiritual, but not so much religious and that's okay. Um, I mean, there's a lot with land claims, Um, You know, last year was the 50th anniversary of um, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971, where um, people think that, like, we were given land, and that's not true. Uh, Our land was taken away, (laughs) and um, subsequently there were contaminated sites that Alaska Native people acquired, too, which were caused by either the military or whatever Um, and they have not been cleaned up yet. Um, and so we're living in some, in some places we have like just really like, you know, dirty pieces of land and, um, and it wasn't our doing obviously. Um, so that's another thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's all holistic, right. And it's all intersect. it, It all 
touches everything because you can't disrupt one thing here and ha- expect nothing to nothing else to be messed up. So I know that it's it's everywhere, um, and it's what we're swimming in now. And in many ways, you know, we're all carrying that with us too. We're all we're all part of the same system that brought us up to believe manifest destiny, and you know, and the um, acquisition of land was. Uh, beneficial for the United States of America, but at whose expense, you know, and, um, you know, we're, we're all living under that. And so I think that we all carry part of that colonialism in us, whether we like to admit it or not, it's there. Um, and then that's not to say that it can't be, get better or it, it's, you know, um, terrible, but it's our shared history at this point now, you know, and I don't want to I don't want to say us versus them type of language. I, I think that it's a shared history um, because, because that would just be so somber and terrible, you know, like, and I'm an optimist, so I don't want to think that way. And um, I do think that it can, it can get better and we are slowly building allies and uncovering the truth. Um, you know, even the boarding school era, so education, like that has a huge effect of colonialism. Um or, you know, white American imperialism, I would even say. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot, and a lot of things that haven't even been uncovered fully yet. Um, but as long as there are Native people out there, they're going to continue to speak out and speak their truth. And that's all I want, you know, and that's all I think that um, is, uh, like, that's the first step forward you know like we just need to speak the truth we need to have spaces where we can actually speak the truth because if we don't then it's it doesn't benefit anyone yeah I really like that sentiment of like as long as there are native people out there they will continue to be like loud and proud which I think is completely true (laughs) I know a lot of native people who are like I'm gonna fight till the day I die which is I think a really great sentiment especially in our current climate which can be a little bit um, antagonistic towards Native people and people who grow up subsistence fishing or whaling or anything like that. I think it's um, a really, really great sentiment to have, and I think it's 100% true. So historically, the idea of colonialism is rooted in this idea of ownership. Would you agree with that statement? And if so, why? Um, I would, I, I don't even think ownership. I think it's about power and a power differential and at whose expense, you know, in, in this white Western way of life, um, somebody holds power and someone doesn't hold the power. That's what my understanding of it is. And there's just different avenues of taking, of doing, of, taking that power, right? And whether it's land, whether it's um, cultural assimilation, whether it's um, literal just money and people who don't have money can't compete, you know, or even try to regain any power or control. Um, I I don't know. I never thought about it in a sense of ownership, but I, I could see that and I could see that connection, but I wouldn't say it's ownership. I would say it's power and maybe greed, but, um, but also, you know, power isn't always 
considered bad, you know, like, um, you know, I guess you could say that America was maybe one of the greatest countries of all time ever for a while, right? And I don't know if that's true anymore, if it will be true into the future, but I mean, we can't predict. But um, I will say that with the introduction of some systems, it hurt us in some ways, but it also benefited us in, in other ways too. So I can't like live in a vacuum and just say that, you know, Native people didn't benefit off of any type of colonialism because that's not true. Um, you know, I know that it cost like millions and millions of dollars to put a water and sewer system in Utkarvik in permafrost, right? And so like what in the world? Who knows how to do that? Like that's wild. How much is that going to cost? And it costs us so much money, but the only way that we were able to do it was through resource extraction in the North Slope, right? And in many ways, having running water is an indicator of like, are you a third world country or not? You know, and and in many places in Alaska, unfortunately, there aren't, there isn't um, running water or sewer. Um, and that could either, you know, serve you or it could hurt you, right? You could get really sick and stuff like that. So, I mean, as much as we want to say that we hate some of these systems and hate these things that have happened to us in the past, it doesn't have to be black or white. It's more nuanced than that, you know. Um, and what we can do is we can move forward from now and try to be better collectively. And whether that means that, you know, we need more people to speak up about certain things then that's what it means. Or maybe we need some people to step down and stop speaking about things. <laughs> you know, that's something too. So um, I don't know. It's really hard because I don't, I, I think I have middle child syndrome too. So where I'm like, uh, I can kind of see both ways, <laughs> you know, and that maybe that's what makes me a good podcaster and a good interviewee or interviewer is because I, I don't ever fully know anything and I'm always interested to learn more. Um, and, and understand why people believe one way or the other. I do feel strongly about some things. Um, and obviously I'll speak out on those and people know that like, I love to argue, <laughs> like I'll go out and I'll like get into arguments all the time. Um, but like fun, you know, never like, I'm not trying to get personal or like, you know, hurt people or anything, but I want to know their logic and their reasoning behind certain things. But yeah, so I mean, it's so complicated and it's so nuanced and I don't expect myself to understand it fully, you know, in my lifetime, but I think it's important to really um, acknowledge and recognize that it is nuanced and complicated. How do you think colonialism and ownership and then also power do you think that it affects modern culture and if so how specifically modern native culture yes of course um i feel like alaska native people are always fighting the power you know i think forever and for always in the history of the United States, if you didn't have money, if you didn't have land, if you didn't have resources, then you were at a disadvantage. We say we live in a democracy, but if the people that have and own all the power in the in the U.S. are people with money, then um, 
you know, like it's just like a redo of, you know, like uh, what we tried to fight our way out of in the beginning of the United States. Um, yeah, I mean, if you don't have money, then you don't really stand a chance. Your voice doesn't really get heard. Sometimes it makes the news, you know, and I've seen that in some instances where like certain um, things get highlighted. Like I remember that guy, he brought like a tutu heart to some thing, like a, a rally or something. And it was just insane and weird. And that made the news. Um, I think it's caused so because of this idea of power and money and, you know, self-determination even and self-empowerment. Um, it's also forced us into a cash economy and um, kind of forced us to either um, translate our values from what they used to be as a communal type of life to a capitalistic type of life, like, you know, uh, individualistic, we're all here, like nuclear family, you know, or, and like, we have to just take care of our, our immediate family and not our community or, you know, disconnection from neighbor to neighbor. Um, I think that that has had an impact in some ways. I don't want to say that it, it's made us so significantly different that we're, we're not connected in a communal way anymore because I do fully believe that we are and that we share, even though we live in a cash economy, we still, I still think that there's economy and subsistence and economy and um, trade and um, shared goods. So I don't want to say that either, but I, I do think it has changed us in a way that we all feel like we need to go out and make money to be, um, to be an active part of society or to be, uh, you know, to survive, I guess you could say, um, or, or somebody important or somebody with a voice or somebody who cares. Like they, you, there's a certain level of expectation of people being able, of having to go out and, and get a job. And, and some people, I think we're so new into this capitalist, capitalistic society because I mean literally our you know what our grandparents and great-grandparents didn't have to live that way they didn't have to work full-time what they had to do is just provide for their families in the way that they knew how for thousands of years by hunting or fishing but now they're forced into a cash economy where they're maybe forced to do a job that they're not even fit to even think about doing you know like and all they want to do is like work with their hands and be, you know, engaged with their minds in a different way and not like at a computer desk and like talking and answering emails or whatever. Like, you know, people don't want to do that. I don't, I don't even want to do that. Um, so I think that that's affected us in some ways. I don't want to say it's a hundred percent bad, but I, I, I know that we're still like, nothing doesn't come without sacrifice or, you know, and I think that that was a huge, um, that came with a price, the, the forced, um, assimilation and rapid Westernization of, um, specifically the North Slope and maybe the rest of the, of Alaska, like that had negative effects on culture and society today. Um, and that's just a truth for me. Coming up next, Glenn talks about the series Resolve, which discusses missing and murdered indigenous women in Alaska. 
We'll be right back. Alaska Teen Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work. So if you're between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska, and interested in joining ATME, go to alaskateenmedia.org join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to Roey's interview with Alice Kunikulin. I want to know more about the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women movement, and I know you said it earlier that you also host a show titled Resolve, which is a show regarding the MMIW movement in Alaska. What can you tell me about your experiences researching and learning more about this movement? Yeah, I can tell you it hasn't been easy. Um, It's been real hard, um, but it's hard but important work. Um, And... I honestly, I don't want to live and remember the statistics that I have learned throughout the process. And um, in some ways, I wish I wouldn't have known some of the stories that I have come to uncover because it does take a toll on me as a person, as an Inupiaq woman, um, because I am such an empath, (laughs) you know, like I see myself in all of the people that I interview, um, and especially Native women, right? And um, and it's it sometimes challenges my, my ethics because I'm like, who am I to um, – and I'm not a health, you know, professional, so I'm like, oh, my God, this is so hard to um, interview people about, like, some of the darkest moments of their lives, you know? It's very hard to – get out of that mind space once you're in it too. I will tell you, I had a complete breakdown in Nome last year, last, not last October, but the year before when I went to do, um, I helped to work on a five part series about sexual systemic issues around sexual assault against native women in Nome. And, um, I was there to interview women record them, record the interviews, and then write a, write a piece on their all of their experiences. Um, well, help to write. I didn't write it. Jenna Kunz wrote it. Um, but I had a, yeah, I just had a complete breakdown when I was in Nome. I had like a total spiritual awakening, which was strange and weird. And like, I'm such a logical, like, um, person that's not connected with that side. I was never, you know, I was like, "Ah, I don't really believe in ghosts or spirits or whatever, you know, and that's been my sentiment like my whole life until I went to Nome. And then when I went to Nome, it just like all came crashing down on me because I think I was, um, I don't know, it was just like a a cauldron of emotions. And I was interviewing women there about their experiences and it just really affected me. Um, I was going through something physically too by myself and then um, emotionally and just, uh, it was during the pandemic. I was doing sober October. So I was like completely sober (laughs) and, you know, like it was just a whole thing. Like, and, and I'm not, I don't regret it. You know, I I literally thought I was going to die. I was like, I need to get on the next plane out of here because I feel like I'm going to die right now. And I know how crazy that sounds, but I was okay with it. I was like, 
it's okay. You know, I had a good run. <laughs> you know, like I think I did some good work in this life. <laughs> I'm ready to go. I was at peace with it, which is kind of messed up, you know, because um, I thought the plane was going to crash on my way out. I was just in a really bad mental space. Um, but I don't regret it. I think it was needed for me. I think I needed that kind of like jolt to be awake, to be, uh, to understand that I'm more than just um, skin and bones and meat and muscle. And, you know, like you're more than what you are scientifically, this like DNA and stuff like that. There's a spiritual connection that we all have. And it's something that I needed to learn like the hard way, I think. Um, but yeah, it's just been, it's been a weird ride since then, but I feel like I'm better for it. And I learned to take care of my mental health better because, um, no one could help you, you know, like when you're in that crazy, um, mental space, like only you can take yourself out. And I had to rely on myself to get myself out. So that felt more empowering. Like if I could get through that, then I can get through anything, you know? And so I was like, whoa, um, I feel better. I still felt like I was going to die when I was still here. In, so when I got here to Anchorage, I still felt like death was so near that I needed to be really, really careful. Like I needed to be careful driving. I needed to like, you know, like don't do anything crazy or rash, just like chill. And it was like that for at least two weeks. Something was, yeah, something was just definitely going on with me. And I don't know, I can't fully understand what, but um, sometimes, and my friend Jackie Igluguk Lambert, who I work with Native Time with, um, she's an amazing, just cultural leader. She's a, a writer, a poet. She's an astrologer. She's a graphic design artist. She's everything. You know, she's just an amazing person. And I feel like she's my medicine woman. And she was like, Alice, some things are just meant to be felt. They're not meant to be explained. Okay. So, and I was like, okay, okay. Then that's that. You know, I was like, I washed my hands of it. I was like, okay, I'm not going to try to explain it anymore. I'm just going to go and tell people how I felt. And that's how I felt. Um, yeah. So I think that uh, the Resolve podcast, I am so thankful and honored that these women and men have shared their sto stories with me um, and they trust me enough to care for their stories in a way that, uh, you know, puts them in a vulnerable position to share the, the darkest moments of their lives. Um, it's important to me because I want people to become aware of those um, experiences that they're not few and far between, that they, they happen a lot more than people think. And it's a problem, you know, it's a problem in Alaska and it's a problem in our native communities. And I'm not blaming any person or culture or group, but it's, you know, it's everyone's responsibility to do something about it. And for me, I feel like if I can do this, then I feel good. You know, I feel like I can, um, I can, uh, I can move on with my life knowing that I helped with this kind of movement um, in that way, just bringing awareness. So, yeah, I mean, I don't care to remember and learn. I mean, to learn and remember the statistics because I just don't think I connect with statistics. I connect with people. And so when I interview people, I, I, I understand it a lot more than I thought I would have, you know, Um and I hope that other people feel the same because some of the stories are very powerful. Those episodes of Resolve can be intense, like you said, and very personal. How do you prepare both with your research and emotionally for the things that you talk about and the things that you hear? Um, so I 
I go into every interview open, completely open. And, um, and maybe that's why it affects me so much is because I open up about my own experiences too. Not to say that I have like traumatic, traumatic experiences, but like I can relate to some women, you know, in some degree. And so when you're that open and vulnerable, that that's what I think has helped make my podcast not res- just resolve, but Coffee and Clock and Alaska Natives on the front line so successful. And that's been, a, I mean, like connecting with another person. Um, I get really nervous in a big crowd. I get nervous like when I'm forced to go to the, like these weird networking events or something where you just kind of feel like, um, I don't know, like, I don't want to say prostituted, but like you're, you're selling something, right? Or you're like, you're, you got to like sell people on yourself or like whether you're in business or if you're, I don't know. I hate those kinds of events. I hate going to them, but I, I love to connect with a person one-on-one. Um, that's where I think that I find meaning. That's where I find comfort. Um, that's where I see humanity is in when you just talk to another person, shed the titles and just um, connect and, and share stories with one another. Um, so um, to prepare for those, I'm just, I, um, I just put my full self into it um, and I'm open to the pain and the vulnerability and the hurt um, and, and the joy, you know, like it's not all so painful. I think in some ways Native people have a way of talking where we can laugh and cry at the same time and, um, and it's not so serious and heavy. Like we can still laugh about some things even though we're talking about really heartbreaking things. Um, so I just try to be as respectful as I can. Um, I also believe in getting the questions to them beforehand so that they don't feel put on the spot about something they're not prepared to answer. You know, if it's a really sensitive subject or if it's a really like particularly hard part of their experience that they don't want to talk about, I don't even want to ask if they're, if they are going to climb up, you know what I mean? So it's important for me because, I mean, I've been there. I've been there where I've had interviews where they're like, oh, yeah, we're just going to interview you. And they ask, like, these really deep questions. And I was like, somebody asked me, like, what is your promise to the next generation, you know, of, like, Alaska Native people? And I was just like, whoa, a promise? You're asking me to make a promise on the spot? I'm like, dang, I take my promises not so lightly. So <laughs> you should have asked, you should have told me about this before you asked me. But, um, and it's not a good feeling, you know, when you feel a little bit blindsided by people like that and, and people that kind of just use your notoriety or your, um, sometimes your indigeneity to just like exploit that. And I hate that because I'm, that's not who I am and that's not what I uphold. So, um, for me, I try to get all of those questions out to them beforehand so they know what they're going to be talking about. Um, yeah, most recently I had an interview with um, someone um, whose twin was murdered. And can you imagine talking to somebody whose twin was murdered, like, and their connection that they had to that twin and their body and then their mind. So like, oh, yeah, it was just heartbreaking, um, but needed, you know, and it, it's needed to share those stories because you have to humanize this statistical problem that, you know, everybody is viewing as this big, like, looming statistic. And I'm like, oh, that's not the way I want to look at it. But yeah, that's how I prepare is I just bring my full self and um, 
my full vulnerability and, and openness to pain and joy, you know, and then go from there. And, and honestly, I'm going to say that every person that I've interviewed, I've had a real connection with. So it's not just like I go in and I have like a clipboard and I just ask these questions and like check them off. You know, it's like, it's a real connection that I have with people. Um, and they're people that I still talk to and I'm friends with today, you know, and I think that that is something that's missing in media today is that, uh, it can just be like, get the job done, you know, ask these five questions and then, you know, move on. But that's not it for me. And maybe that's, um, maybe that's just the answer to like building a more trusting relationship with media in this era of fake news, you know, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it could be done at, uh, at what price, you know, and, and sometimes for me, it's at my mental health, but, um, I'm learning as I go how to deal with it. And I think the, um, the benefits outweigh the, um, detriments or the, you know, the cons or whatever. So I think that it's better to just, um, try and, and then figure it out along the way rather than, I don't know, not doing it at all. So after you do an episode of Resolve, is there anything specifically you do for self-care? How do you recharge and regain your emotional and possibly physical like well-being? <laughs> Obviously, that's something I need to work on, uh, <laughs> something that I struggle with. Um, and cause my coping, me my coping, uh, mechanisms are not healthy. I usually just shut down and I don't want to like talk to anybody for a long time. I don't want to be around people. I don't want to talk about the interview. I don't want to edit the interview. Like it's gotten to a point where I need like my business partner, um, or my, you know, my partner, Mary Katsky from Affinity Film. She's like, we're going to have someone else edit them because it's just taking a little while for you to get to editing these podcast episodes. And I'm like, I know, I'm so sorry. It was just so heavy, you know, and I, and it's one thing to do the interview, but it's another thing to listen to it over and over and over again when you edit it, you know, it's hard. And I knew that, um, as soon as I did my first podcast episode with Resolve, I knew that that, that was going to be an issue but I did, still didn't do anything about it. I was just like, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, but it just took long. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't have all the answers. I'm still struggling with it. I try to take care of myself as best as I can by reconnecting with family, you know, making sure that I talk to people in a healthy way. One time I got out of like an interview and I just cried to Jackie and I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry for just dumping all this on you at brunch. Like I just cried to her and I was like, oh my God, she probably wasn't even ready for this, you know? And like, how much harm am I doing by, you know, like just triggering her into something that I experienced, you know? And there's, you know, there's a lot to think about in that. And so um, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not the best at it. I'm trying. Um, I, I try to be with my family. I try to talk about my feelings and emotions so that it doesn't come out in an explosion or a panic attack or like a fit of cries. Um, but yeah, I, I'm an introvert. So the way that I deal with things, I try not to rely on other people to help me get through things, but sometimes you need people to process and to help guide you into the right 
healthy mindset. But for me, I feel like I always understand and know where I need what I need to do and where I need to be. So I feel like I'm guiding myself, but sometimes it's it's wrong, you know, and yeah. So I don't know. I don't have an answer for that and I don't want to influence anybody else. I'm just going to say it's it's hard work, but it's meaningful work and I feel like it's still needed even though um, it affects me sometimes in a way that I shut down for a couple days or a week or so. Um, I don't think that like, um, I don't have like crazy negative thoughts. You know, I don't think that I, I need to be put in some kind of situation where I need to be monitored or whatever. It's just my own way of dealing with things. And that's not just resolve. It's with everything else too. Like that's just how I deal with things. Um, I do lean on, lean in on my best friends, you know, Becca Gwecko and Margaret Alice, like they are just, you know, my saving graces and Jackie too, obviously she's my medicine woman. So like, yeah, I mean, you have to lean on people sometimes. And, um, even if it's like, what are friends for? You know, <laughs> and so, but I have to. I try not to dump on them in a way that's like, bah! <laughs> and then like mess them up too. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, totally. I have that problem sometimes too. But it's you know, like it's okay to not know. It's okay to not know what to do, and it's okay to kind of be confused about like what is self care because I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, it's just like taking bubble baths <laughs> and doing a face mask, and it's like, no. <laughs> Self-care is something that you should be doing full-time, all the time. Yeah, I used to think that too when I was in college. Um, so I didn't know that I suffered from anxiety. I thought I was just like a nervous person, but I just didn't have the words for it or understand it fully, right? Because at that time, you know, in the early 2000s, I don't even think we we're having that much conversation around like mental health or like, you know, whatever. But yeah, I used to just, I thought self-care was just watching my favorite TV show, but it was like a form of escapism for me where I would just like, I had a really hard day. So I go to watch my favorite TV show and it's just like distracting my brain from what I'm really trying to process internally. And then that's when I figured I was like, oh shit, that's not even helping me. <laughs> you know, like I thought it was helping me, but I'm just like, it's still building up. Like there's still an elephant here on my chest. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's a learning, it's a learning curve. You have to really figure it out. And I'm, what I'm glad about like this generation, like Gen Z is that there's more, um, care into mental health and more, um, awareness and more, um, sensitivity, I guess, around it, which allows us older folks like millennials to be able to open up about those things too, and to really examine our actions and our thoughts and our, you know, ourselves too. So that's cool. So thinking back on all of the interviews you've done over all the podcasts you host, what are some things that you've learned about yourself, your identity, and or your culture? Um, I learned that it never gets easier. I'm always nervous before I go into an interview. That's always just, it happens. It's just how it's going to be. I just accepted it. You just get comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, that's one. Uh, that I've learned about myself. Um, there are so many cool things that I've learned about culture and I'm so thankful to have met so many brilliant people along the way. There was one episode of, um, I worked on this short film called The Forgotten Slavery of Our Ancestors, which was a history, a brief history about the enslavement of indigenous peoples in what is now known as the United States. 
and we interviewed Dr. Sven Hawkinson and he had just a lot to say that I had no idea. I didn't know. We don't learn those things in school um, about the Sukhpiat people from Kodiak and what they went through um, in not just Russian colonization, but also American colonization, which is wild. Um, so I was appreciative of his time for that. Um, there's just like a lot of cool, fun, interesting things that, uh, that I learned when I was doing my interviews up North and I still have more to come for my Alaska natives on the front line. I just didn't get it, get, um, get the time to publish them all. There was like at least eight or nine interviews that we did and I only published four, three or four. So I'm still working on the other ones, but, um, man, I was just listening and editing an episode today with Corey Erickson, which may or may not get published. I'm not sure yet because I have to get the okay from him first, but I interviewed him and and he agreed to have it recorded. But he was talking about like in Utkalavik, there's this place called NARL, the Naval Arctic Research Lab, where the Navy was based, the military was based for a while. And during that time, there were a lot of researchers and scientists that had come to the Arctic. I think it was a period of like at least um, 30 to 40 years where um, they went straight to the to the Naval Arctic Research Lab. And of those like 40 years, only one Inupiaq person was cited by name as and credited by name in in like the thousands of scientific articles that came out which is obscene and ridiculous because you can't survive <laughs> in the arctic without the native people's expertise local expertise like knowledge like getting them out onto the ice you know they don't even know the ice conditions like the, you know there's just so many different things and that shocked me because he said like four people, like there was like four people that were um, just like native person or like native man and only one person named by his name, his actual name. <laughs> and that shocked me too because, you know, you know, I come from like a, a scientific family. My dad, he founded Basque, which was Barrow Arctic Science Consortium. It used to be a nonprofit in Utkarvik, but now it's the BARC, Barrow Arctic Research Consortium, um, where scientists can rent labs. At first it was just housing for scientists, but now it's you can rent lab space and like lab materials, which is cool. Um, but we grew up with scientists in and out of our house all the time. You know, like they would come over on the weekends because they're in town or whatever, and my dad would befriend them. And so we as children, me and my sisters, we all just kind of met all of these scientists that came into town and we're all in some way science focused because that's just what we grew up with and what we cherish and what we love. And our dad was a geologist, so um, we loved it. But to hear that history was hard, you know, to hear that like, because um, my my dad, my mom's dad, my appa, so my Aka, who I loved dearly so much and spent so much time in her house, her husband, my appa, used to take researchers and scientists out on the ice to do help them do their research. And to know that like his work had gone just undocumented or like un, you know, named or whatever, like that's hard, you know, and that's it's frustrating. But 
I'm glad that there are people like Corey now who can understand and recognize that that happened, you know, and that, and that it's an injustice to indigenous peoples. But I mean, it's not like a battle cry, but it's also just like, yo, man, this is what happened in the past. It's not going to happen anymore. So like, let's not focus on uh, just these scientists that are going into town. Um, so that, I mean, that was just really eye-opening um, just because there's like special, you know, connection in history, you know, with my family with that. And then, and, you know, I, I just learned that I really love connecting with people. I love people, you know, I, I really do. And I really care about each person individually. Um, and I thought I didn't, but I was just connecting with people in the wrong way, I think, you know, and, um, and to get people to open up and to talk about really sensitive things and, and hard things has made me understand that I do just really love people for who they are. And if you, if anyone had a chance to be in my position every day to interview people in the way that I do, then they would be more, um, empathetic too, or humane, or, you know, like just that would be, everything would be more humanized instead of like this weird, like mob mentality or like, um, disconnection, dissociation from people or whatever. I think that, um, I love people and I, I feel honored and proud to do what I do and honored that people will share their story with me. I really like that. I think that's, um, to be like I think that's a great sentiment again but I think um you're in a really interesting position where you get to hear all of these very individual and very personal stories and you also get to connect with the people that are telling them and a lot of people don't get to do that like they just read the news on their phone and they hear its stories but they don't get to connect with those people on a personal level and I think that's a really unique thing that you get to do and that actually brings me to my next question do you feel like there are any similarities in the way that your guests understand their identity and their culture I mean generally yes I think everyone just wants to be more closer to their culture some people are very comfortable with where they're at in their culture which is great too um I think that everyone's different, you know, and some people feel good with where they're at and some people want to be closer. I don't think anyone wants to feel more removed, which is great. That's a good indicator and, uh, you know, a good prospect for the future. Um, but everyone's at various and varying degrees of connection to culture. and that's how it, I mean, that's natural, you know, and I think that that is part of our collective story too, which we don't want to sensationalize or we don't want to romanticize or, you know, set anyone in some weird past tense way because we are always changing and adapting and that's part of culture. That's part of Alaska Native culture. That's part of human culture. You know, so there's no reason to put ourselves in boxes and to say, like, 
oh, you know, even even like the sense of time, right? So like traditional versus contemporary, I think that that is also a form of um, like divisiveness or whatever. Like why is, you know, why are my tattoos like traditional? They're not traditional. This, this is contemporary because I'm doing it today, you know, and I'm native. So like why, why are these traditional tattoos? Um, because there's a connection to ancestry and history and heritage with them. Yes. But also like I live today. I also have, you know, uh, I don't have an iPhone, but I have a (laughs) Samsung, you know, like we're all living today, you know, and, and we're all modern and contemporary, but what does that mean? And what does that mean when people are listening back onto this podcast or this episode or whatever, when you say contemporary to them? it's going to be in the past, you know? So like, why do we make these, you know, this distinctions of like who we are then versus who we are today when time is always moving anyways, it's always dynamic, you know? And so in some ways that also puts us in boxes, which I don't think is fair. And, but I mean, I'm still coming to understand and figure that part out too. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think that everyone has their own approach to how they feel about themselves and their identity and their culture. And that's okay with me. And that's what I want to share with people is that it's not black and white. It's nuanced, you know, and that just because we don't all agree on one thing doesn't mean that like, uh, we don't, um, that we don't support one another, that we don't care about one another, that we're not a community. Um, you know, cause this is why, are, why are other societies granted this, um, idea of having d- differing views and can still be successful in one way or another, whereas like native, they have to be together. And if they're not, then like, we can't get anything done, you know? So I don't know. Sorry. I'm just like stream of consciousness, like speaking to you now. <laughs> no, it's okay. I think those are really great ideas. We are coming up on the end of the interview now, though, so get all of those ideas out. (laughs) What do you think we, Alaskans, Americans, or just people in general, can do to make things more equitable? Who? Who are we asking to make things more equitable? Because who has the power? You know what I mean? Um, Maybe the government? Maybe the people who own the corporations who... But the government, government's fund, I mean, the government is for the people, you know? So, like, the government is a representation of the people. So if people aren't voting the right way, or maybe they don't have access to votes or something like that, then, I mean, that's... So how can we make a more equitable future for all of us or for Native people? I would say particularly Native people having more Native people in power positions. Um, It doesn't mean like at the expense of anybody else. I think it just means uh, representing the population equitably in different decision-making spaces. Um, You know, I think what Alaskans or Alaskan Native people are at least a fifth of the population of Alaska. So they, there should be at least one native person in every five person group. Um, it's really, it really just, I think that's what it comes down to, you know, and it's just representation in media and then all other spaces, 
you know, I mean, media, I'm like, yeah, all over, you know, like, <laughs> but, uh, but for decision-making processes, you know, and like lawmaking or whatever and policy, um, I would say at least have, you know, I mean, preferably I would at least want two, but at least one for every five. Um, that seems equitable to me. Um, I don't know. That's a hard question too, because what is, what is equity and what does it mean to what person in what sector? Because equity can mean something totally different in like philanthropy or nonprofit versus in legislation, or it can be something totally different in for-profit and, um, you know, uh, environmentalism or something like that. So I, I think it's messy. I think the wheel is not working for all of us. And I heard, um, Dr. EJ Ramos David, who is a psych professor at UAA and an author of many books, um, and is from Utkervik too. So my fellow Barrow Mute, um, he said, at the Social Justice Summit in like 2017, 2018, I can't remember. Um, if the wheel doesn't work for all of us, then we need to break the wheel. <laughs> I mean, it's not working, right? So how are we going to try to make it work on one end when it's just going to get bigger on another end, you know, and it's just going to continue? We need Maybe we need to break the wheel. And that's a little bit radical. But I don't have any other answer otherwise. And it might come to that. I don't, I hope it doesn't. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I don't know what I hope. I don't know. I, I can't, I can't figure it out. But I think that, you know, equity means different things for different people and in different sectors, right? Um, for me personally, I just want to get Native stories out there. I just want people to know the real authentic native experience so that we can go from there and I don't have to continue, I don't have to waste time explaining myself to someone who doesn't know what it's like for me to grow up because that's where we're, I mean, that's so much energy, you know, to just get people up to speed and that takes a lot of time and resources and energy that I just don't, I choose not to, that I would just want to go from here forward. And so that's what native time is. We're like, we're not explaining to anyone. Like that shit's Googleable. Like you can read a book, you can check it out online, you can, you know, read an article. Um, what we want to do is we're trying to push it this way, not like stay here and go backwards and explain to people that don't even understand our experience that, you know, what it's about. We're not going there. We're going this way. And if you're not coming with us, then you're not coming with us, <laughs> you know? So um, that's a really loaded question and it really calls on each person to understand what is within their own power. How can they uplift Alaska Native voices and not just Alaska Native voices, people of color, you know, black indigenous people of color. So Asians, black people, indigenous people, like all of those um, quote unquote minorities you know, they ought to create space for and listen to more and be open to their experiences because it's, it's, let's just say it's just not like the same regular person, a uh, non-native white westernized person with, you know, decades of success, money, and land 
uh, like just think about it like just think about some of the people that have made so much money off of the um off the backs of black slavery off the backs of stolen indigenous lands you know it's just it's messy you know and it's it's kind of shameful but there's people not taking responsibility for those things today and that's why we are at this huge inequity in our society today um but yeah i mean it also calls on people to practice what they preach you know so i don't know it's hard you go you open a can of worms <laughs> yeah i sure did it's it's a very large discussion that I think we could talk about for a very long time. Um, but I agree with those points. I think it's really about like just being able to kind of make space and um, listen to people's stories, but also move forward and recognize that we all have a future here and we all deserve a future here. And we need to live in the now, I think, um, is a good kind of place to be. But thank you so much for being here and letting me interview you. Um, it was so great to listen to your stories and to connect with you and to talk with you. Um, do you have anything else that you'd like to add? Um, no, I just want to thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, if anyone is interested more in anything that I had to say, please feel free to reach out to me directly. Um, I do want to share that I am coming out with my own coffee brand soon for coffee and clock, which I can't believe I never thought of before, but, um, yeah, so I have a, a coffee specialty coffee line that's coming out soon inspired by the Inupiat whalers of the North Slope and um yeah so it's my newest kind of like support for the podcast just because it's been a little bit of a, a rough time financially trying to um take care of the podcast um you know without getting paid <laughs> basically so so we're trying to get paid in 2022 but if you would like to support um an alaska native woman in your woman-owned business then consider you know supporting the coffee um i'm sure it's uh worth it so thank you thank you so much roey uh and um yeah i i hope to hear and see more from you all I hope so too. So where can our listeners connect with you? Where can they find you? Mm, find me on all social media. I'm super active. That's where I engage with my listeners the most is on social media, Instagram, Twitter. Um, not so much Facebook, I guess. I get. I, I mean, it's 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 there, but I'm, I'm a little bit more active on Instagram and Twitter um, and my Patreon. So yeah, feel free to reach out to me and email. So I, I have a website too, www.coffeeandclock.com. Q-U-A-Q.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. That was podcaster Alice Kennett Glenn speaking with Abby producer Rowan McCowan. You've been listening to Zoom Room, a production of the Alaska Teen Media Institute. Your show's theme music is done by me, Kendrick Whiteman. 
Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to the supporters of our podcast, including Spirit of Youth and United Way of Anchorage. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our program and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Abney. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Kendrick Whiteman. Thanks for listening. Thank you.